The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, Amazon's Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post. The paywalls go up at the sun as the free-to-air Daily Mail hits an all-time high. And there's a new Time Lord in the TARDIS. But is he the right doctor? And we talk I Love My Country and Southcliffe with The Guardian's TV critic Sam Wollaston. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. First up, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by The Guardian's former digital czar, Emily Bell, now director of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism at Columbia University, and by Media Talk regular Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. And Emily, can you confirm to listeners you are actually here in the flesh? I after... am actually here. I'm here. Not in... down the line. No, in the, I'm enjoying the Tufty Club decor once again. Uh, yeah, indeed. This is the Guardian studio you're talking about. Yeah, yes. Good, happy right. memories, yeah? You're very happy memories. And she's charming in lavender. I, I am charming in lavender. Thank you. For, and, and Maggie is charming in um, sort of lavender and spots. And because no one else is going to say there'll be a lot of flash on that. <laughs> there would be, yeah. I'm, I'm wearing white because I know listeners will be interested. Uh, jolly good. Well, we start this week uh, only partly because Emily's here, but partly because there's been an enormous media deal uh, in the States. That's right. It's Amazon founder Jeff Bezos who shocked the media industry this week with his $250 million purchase of the Washington Post, which is, if you don't know, the second most important newspaper in the US after the New York Times. That's right. This is one of those great stories that brings together one part of the media with another. In this case, an 80-year-old national newspaper that broke Watergate back in 1972. It's had some scoops since then. And an online retail giant founded by a man whose personal fortune is now estimated at $22 billion, which makes, I think I've got the maths right, the amount he spent on the Washington Post the equivalent of what you or I spend on our daily paper. Uh, well, almost. Emily, what's your take on this deal? Well, this is amazing. I mean, I know that when you start talking about deals involving funny newspapers that people have never seen necessarily it's sort of it's difficult to convey the sense of shock i think and particularly partly because none of this leaked uh, it's a terrible indictment actually on media reporters i think in the united states there wasn't a hint of this happening, right down to the point at which the Washington Post staff were filing into the auditorium this week to be told by Don Graham, who's part of the great Graham family that have owned the paper since 1933, that it was going to be sold. Nobody had any idea. Uh, It's an enormously dramatic moment. Partly because, as you say, the Washington Post is the paper of the Pentagon Papers. It's the paper of Watergate. Uh, for a long time, it was really sort of, if you like, the kind of the, the paper of record of Capitol Hill, leadership of the free world, etc. And for a family like the Grahams, who are so wedded to the idea of newspaper ownership, to actually put their hands up and say, we can't actually do this anymore. We love the post. We love the post more than anything in the world. And in order to, you know, when you love something, set it free. We can't continue to support something which has, you know, declining revenue. I think Don Graham said uh, seven years in a row. We need, know it needs investment. We don't have that money. So we found who we think is the best person to buy it. You know, second shock. Jeff Bezos, who is, as you say, I mean, I've read the figure 28 billion, but hey, what's six billion between (laughs) friends, who is one of the most successful, if you like, sort of internet age entrepreneurs. He actually is not based in Silicon Valley, he's based in Seattle. But a lot of his thinking has really influenced a lot of the Silicon Valley companies. He was one of the very first entrepreneurs to get his company IPO'd 
in a way that made the market accept he didn't have to make any profits, but he had to build sort of long-term share. Um, but he is not somebody who has any public... Well, he has a public profile related to his enormous business success and wealth, but he's quite private. He's not somebody like Gates who said, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z with my cash. He's kind of invested in a couple of kooky things, like a 10,000-year clock in a mountain, which, you know, um, I said in a piece I wrote for The Guardian, I thought made... Um, you know, sort of it, the newspaper's slightly riskier investment than that. <laughs> and a human space travel, like everyone in Silicon Valley basically has a rocket. You're nobody. Unless so you're, old hat. Yeah, so unless you're putting somebody into inner space or outer space. And what's come after that is uh, a ton of coverage and speculation. Though somebody who's really knowledgeable with the situation said to me the other day, do you know what? We know what Don Graham says, which is, you know, we can't afford to keep. We want it to succeed and we can't afford to make it succeed. But beyond that, we really know almost nothing about what Bezos is going to do with it, why he's bought it, what his role's going to be. It's not part of Amazon. That's the other thing that's important to say. It's in his own private company. So it won't be something that shareholders are scrutinising anymore. And that was something else that Don Graham said, which is, you know, is a small public company the right place for a newspaper? Because he's got into publishing, of course, book publishing with the Kindle. And it's kind of had a big impact there. But, you know, previously no interest in newspapers. And you wonder, is there, a, I mean, yeah, what potential he, is there for sort of bundling with other parts of his business? Well, he invested a little bit. He invested $5 million in a very sort of sparky um, business website called Business Insider, which is run by Henry Blodgett, who used to be a, uh, Maggie will remember him from the years of those kind of Wall Street, well, those Wall Street, the Wall Street analysts, there was he, he, Henry Blodgett and sort of a couple of others who were all then disgraced and disbarred. Uh, but Henry came back and is now a media owner himself. And uh, Jeff Bezos is invested a small amount in his company but that's really the only media investment we've seen from him um he is very interested in retail customer relations and as you say actually kind of hardware that's married to the sale of content and that's where his development of the kindle has um sort of sprung from and you know there's a there's a great competition between amazon and apple around the idea of devices and, and, and selling content through those devices. But, you know, the Washington Post is such a kind of a, if you like, a sort of a speck of dust on, on, on the face of whole... If you think about all the online content that there is and what Bezos could be going after, I think sort of making a, a close link between those two, I think it will be incidentally kind of good for the Post... But I don't know that it's a sort of central plank of the strategy. I mean, I actually am not that surprised. Furthermore, if you actually look in America, we see Warren Buffett not only investing in the Washington Post company, but he has bought out, OK, much smaller papers. We've seen the uh, Red Sox owner, John Henry, buying yeah. the, the, the uh, Boston... Carlos and, Slim invests in the New York Times, who's, indeed, you know... Indeed, the Boston title. I don't find it su- well, surprising. But I'll tell you why Bezos has been a real surprise in the US market. Because actually there's, a, there's, an almost, there's a, almost like a palpable cultural divide between the East Coast and the West Coast cultures of the States. And this is the first person who's really made sort of mega billions out of that engineering culture and what we call programmatic thinking uh, and entrepreneurial spirit on on the West Coast, who 
has not only kind of is, is not expressing contempt and and really that as I say you can't until you actually sort of go there and experience it you don't really realize what a gap there is between the government and the media on the east coast and if you like sort of you know the the, the Silicon Valley thinking and philosophy on the west coast Bezos maybe doesn't fit completely into that but he is definitely somebody who is but on the other hand look he's mainly through the Kindle which I'm a huge user of it's books really yeah. that he's, that he's, I mean other things as well but yeah. fundamentally the publishing industry is largely I would say based in New York and, and the East Coast so is the advertising industry of which he's a master I mean the, w- the one thing that makes my heart sink actually in this deal if I was an American anyway and I was subscribing to the Washington Post would be the awful prospect that I would be marketed to ad nauseum as a Washington Post reader and I, I mean I, I do think he I do think Amazon kind of almost over targets and overplays that side of things but to be frank to have somebody like this coming in with a wad of cash with money to invest we hope and with also one hopes some safeguards uh, for the paper I, I think this is actually a very good thing we wait and see what happens with the washington post under its uh, new owner but we're going to stick with newspapers uh, in fact go to australia so we're we're, we're straddling the globe uh, on this week's media talk without actually uh, moving a muscle well, Rupert Murdoch took the gloves off in the country's general election, which has been announced for the 7th of September. A front page on Murdoch's Daily Telegraph was, well, it was equivocal even by Murdoch standards. It was a picture of Prime Minister Kevin Rudd next to a giant headline that told readers, now you finally have a chance to kick this mob out. It might have been in a slightly different accent. As uh, Media Guardian columnist Roy Greenslade said, it was blatant, bold and belligerent. Emily, I'm sure if Rupert was uh, back in front of Leveson, he'd say this... Uh, decision was taken entirely by his uh, editors and it was nothing to do with his company's commercial interests uh, but w- w- what did you make of this front page it was quite uh, it was tough stuff yes i thought for an exciting moment we were going to talk about the um, sexting scandal in the australian mps but the, but this we can come is, to this, that we can come to this this is much this is much more interesting you know i caught up with this because uh, actually rupert murdoch as we know sort of likes to tweet about he's been tweeting about australian politics and if you like what a sort of a, a mess the country is in so i think if you were casually looking at his twitter feed and you were the editor of one of his papers you might d- define that it would not be the worst thing in the world if you were going to kind of splash on the front page like this but this is kind of classic murdoch you know and I don't think he's ever particularly made a secret of the fact that, um, you know, he's never pretended that he doesn't influence particularly his kind of mass market papers in whichever market he's in. You know, this is like, you know, will the last person in um, to leave Australia please turn out the lights type headline? I mean, he's he's installed to um, Cole Allen, who's a very uh, tough uh, editor to beef things up. In addition, uh, Murdoch is clearly discomforted by the fact that the Rudd, uh, administration, if they get back in, plan to pump $35 billion uh, into a super-fast uh, broadband highway across Australia, which I assume would uh, certainly affect his his hold over uh, satellite television services. So there's, I think there's a commercial interest there as well. I was quite, quite, quite interested in the um, Australian, if you like, sort of dialogue, political dialogue around this, where somebody said this is the most extraordinary intervention on day one of the campaign. And I was thinking, given, you know, the frank uh, exchange and views of Australians in, in, in the public political arena, and particularly given the fact that Murdoch owns, I think, still 70% of the press in Australia, yeah. that it doesn't seem like an extraordinary intervention at all to me. It seems and I mean, again, just look at the ruthless dismissal of Julia Gillard as well. I mean, this is a country which does actually speak its mind and uh, is, is a, it's a pretty forthright uh, place. Well, we're going to stick with uh, Murdoch, but we're going to uh, clamber back on our uh, metaphorical plane and uh, zoom back to the UK. Am I taking this too far? 
Got any duty free? No, I like that. I like that. I like the round the world in eighty seconds. On the first of August, a two pounds a week digital paywall went up at the Sun. It coincided with a, a repositioning of the paper by its new editor David Dinsmore in an interview on LBC. You may have heard it. It kind of came across as a bit more sort of touchy feely and all embracing. Uh, similarly, all embracing, at least around the paper, was a, a wraparound cover celebrating the incredible transformation of our country by technology including probably the technology to stick a paywall up on your website. Subscribers get access to stories and videos on their smartphones, tablets and everything else. And also, of course, Premier League football highlights, which, uh, like BT, they're using football to drive another part of their business. Emily, what, what, what do you make of it? What's the, uh, what's the response so far? I'm so old that I remember when The Sun put up a paywall or registration wall for the first time and then took it down again because it wasn't really working. So I think we may be coming on to talk about the Daily Mail's online. We might be, yeah. T- at the same You're time. You're like some kind of soothsayer. Yeah, I am. It's amazing. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, it's the Google Glass that I'm wearing. Um, <laughs> I can see why they're doing this. You know, the, the Murdoch papers have been very committed in this country with the Times going first on we must get people to subscribe and pay. And, you know, they have tried this every which way. Uh, I think, you know, thinking if we can do it so successfully with Sky, why can't we make it work um, around newspapers? But the Sun in particular is up against the mighty machine of Mail Online, which has kind of flattened all before it with a very aggressively free, unpaywalled, open policy. And it's seen, you know, revenues rising on its digital side, maybe not enough to kind of offset the declines in print, but, you know, it's doing pretty well. It's, 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 it's making money on that side of the business. I mean, when you think about the kind of stuff that the stories that the Sun runs and the kinds of things that it has, it's, it's going to have to invest more in this idea of, I think, you know, that having Premier League clips is one thing that I think that they're doing. On smartphones, I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're going for the sort of the average working bloke who doesn't necessarily have a tablet, but is out and about, maybe builder, whatever you call it, and you can just have a little kind of catch up and see some goals and share them with your mates. I mean, I, I, it's certainly not targeted at me, that's what I can say. Uh, I also uh, think that what's actually happening is that they've, they've imported across Mike Darcy, who was the chief operating officer at BSkyB, to run the papers, and all of this is, is a kind of me too strategy. Uh, I don't know if it will work or, or not. It, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a transformative kind of. I think uh, it's. We're back deal. to that. We're back to that phrase, managing decline. I mean, they're talking about well, we can transform it through sport. I think sort of sports, and that's why. You're absolutely right, Maggie, that Mike Darcy will import that strategy from I, mean, I think 10 years ago they telly. might have had, you know, selection of topless ladies, but I think probably that's slightly too kind of old hat I, be- I believe you can find them on the you internet. You can find them, For indeed. nothing, yes, but indeed, I'm told. Well. They're going to have to opt in soon. As I say, they don't, they, David Cameron is put, putting a stop to that, so I don't know, maybe it's kind of, you know... But, but I don't think you can... I, I've always thought Mike Darcy was a very um, formidable operator who studies and is very, very strategic, and so... I don't know whether this will work or not. After all, James Murdoch was there trying to do something of the same thing with the, with the Times and the paywall. We, we, it, it's a sort of, as you say, either it's managing decline or it doesn't seem like a bright new tomorrow to they, me. They've had a lot. They've had a very little success in terms of things that they have, things that actually the Murdoch management have implemented in uh, digital strategies. They actually do have a very successful digital subscription operation uh, in the shape of the Wall Street Journal. But that was a pre-existing strategy before they actually bought the journal and it had that sort of, that, that customer base. And we've and, seen and that with the Financial Times too. I yeah, mean, and we've seen it with the Financial Times. And those are different things. Those are different properties. Well, you mentioned the mails. We should uh, tip our hat to their figures. So uh, the month, it was the best ever month for web traffic. Uh, 130 million users over the month 
and they had their biggest ever day, which was uh, 10.6 million users on the 22nd of July, which was, uh, of course, we won't need reminding, was the day of uh, birth of baby George, of course. Indeed. Well, this is a bit, I don't think it's any um, coincidence that they've released those figures slightly early uh, to coincide with the Sun's paywall. It's interesting that, you know, in the um, offline market, the Rothermers, the sort of the male owners, have always in the past avoided those direct clashes with Murdoch. It sort of it flared up on the, the, the free sheets on, on you know in, in London a few years ago, but they've always been slightly different markets. Now, in terms of, you know, that kind of, if you like, sort of tabloid, human interest, celebrity-driven, you know, sports-centric coverage online, they're absolutely in square competition with each other. Well, I think, I mean, I've been reading all the Simon Cowell stuff, actually, on the Mail Online. I mean, they really go for these stories, and, and they're it's become, just utterly fascinating. I hate myself. I've become fascinated by Simon, the prospect of Simon Cowell fathering a baby. How pathetic is that? And there's I blame, a, entirely blame the Mail Online. There's a Media Talk Simon Cowell special coming up later this week. Well, that's enough newspapers for now. We'll be back with TV and a specially extended Media Monkey quiz after this. Right, as advertised, uh, especially for Maggie Brown, uh, extended Media Monkey quiz. I know it's her favourite part of the podcast. Uh, I've even written down M, B and E, B uh, here so I can keep count of the uh, score, so no pressure. Uh, number one, uh, who is joining Channel 4 News as its new culture and digital? Uh, Emily Bell? Paul Mason. Paul Mason from uh, Newsnight. Uh, an, another Newsnight face joins Channel 4 News. I was going to say I'm devastated because he'll now be on before I get home for my tea, but now I realise I don't even live here anymore. But actually, you know, the interesting thing is he's slightly changing his brief because he's not he going is. to do economics. He's going to do culture and sort of social trends. Digital. Digital, yes. I mean, I think he's actually a, a semi-replacement for Matthew Kane, who was the culture editor who left uh, this summer. So very odd. I, but Newsnight is a very, very unhappy ship at the moment. So I'm not at all surprised. Still awaiting its new editor, of course. Well, in September, yes. Ian Katz. Former Later this editor parish, of the mm. It will be a much happier ship then. OK, question number two. Uh, who's going to make uh, remake ITV's Broadchurch? Oh, um, Foxtel. Fox in the US, that's right, Maggie. What do you think? A hit or miss? What's your prediction? Uh, I think it'll be a hit. Because, because it's, 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 a, it's a strong story and it's kind of small town kind of murders and America's stuff full of those. But, but they, may, they may murder it like they did the killing. Yes, they may. But on the other hand, they may actually have learnt a lesson or two. Question number three. Uh, who did well? This is rather open-ended. Uh, Maggie, who did, oh, Maggie, that's, that's if I'm giving it to Maggie, isn't it? Who did well in the Ray Jars this week? Oh, my goodness. I, I can't know. even compete on that. Um, I'm not even going to try. Uh, wasn't, wasn't it something to do with Radio 1's uh, new breakfast host? That'll you know, do, yeah. But, well, I'm not sure that qualifies for a whole point. Please tell me that Nick Grimshaw did not do well in the Ray Jars. I don't, know very, I don't know very much about British radio since I left, but I do know that I've heard him and I don't like him very much. Well, let me tell you, Emily. He bounced back from a very difficult oh. Ray Jar last time. <laughs> went up 100,000. But well, LBC did well too, didn't they? Maggie, please right? let me explain oh, Nick Grimshaw's figures, please. <laughs> uh, you've had your chance. Um, <laughs> But it's still a million down on uh, Moyle's, Chris Moyle's last audience. But, you know, I mean, Radio 1, it's not aimed at us anymore, Emily, so maybe that's a good thing. I was going to say, I think they're doing a good thing, because I really didn't like Chris Moyle's either, whereas my kids absolutely loved him. And they no. probably like, yes, they did. And they absolutely love Gr- Nick Grimshaw as well, whereas I am old. Maggie, it's as if I asked that question just to ask you about what Ofcom had to say about radio last week. Oh, well, this is really, really fascinating. I thought it might be. Ofcom brought out their communications, uh, well, it is a review, which they do every year. And what you actually find if you compare 2007 with today is that there's been hardly any change in the radio market by that in I terms mean, of listening in well you know the weekly reach is 89.8 percent it was 89.6 percent the hours of week per week have gone down a bit but hardly to nearly just 20 hours from 
20.6. Even among the young people? BBC, well, that is a problem. But the BBC's share is basically unchanged. Commercial radio is basically unchanged. One of the problems is that uh, commercial radio's income has really just declined in real terms. It was 523 million a year. Now it's 472 million, which explains a huge amount uh, about their problems and about the fact that they've had to consolidate. And above all, what you see is a sudden, very sharp uh, spurt of listening to radio taking place on smartphones, up from 13% to 26%. Very, very interesting. And I, I think that just shows that you can never be certain. You can't just nail the coffin down on commercial radio and say it's had it. Uh, and it, you can't also say it's all going to be digital and everything's going to change. It, it's, it's quite a fluid uh, delivery system. But fundamentally, you have these two big blocks and uh, not much change within them except the BBC's budget for radio goes up and commercial radio at the moment although it's having a small bounce back it's stagnant okay next question um who is the new Doctor Who <laughs> Peter Capaldi <laughs> right yes it's another I, I, sharp I featured Scotsman indeed I well because I spent the whole day watching new Doctor Who on Twitter it's Which quite is unusual, isn't it? Unusual in the sense that they've been getting younger and younger. Uh, now they've gone older again, and he's a, a big male. name. Still, Still white male. male. Not that unusual, John. We're talking about it. It had to be male, though, because how is he then to have a relationship with his already. Oh, Maggie, of... it's the 21st century. Come on, let's be more, broad, more broad minded about this. Did you never watch Xena Warrior Princess? <laughs> I know, Honestly. But even so, uh, that is quite, quite, quite a big change. They'd have to have a male helper first, and then they'd have to do something, I think. Anyway, well, I thought a, a good signing, but the pressure's on to succeed. Signing. I think yeah. it is a good signing because, in a way, you do have to refresh a show like that. It's been very successful but it has been going off the boil it's what too bloody complicated isn't it or it's become very I think I think the plots have become uh, yes too convoluted and a, a little bit too extreme my nine year old can follow them oh, I've well. never, I haven't been watching it but he says it's very good and also remember Christopher <laughs> Eccleston was actually just a one shot uh, a, a revival of Doctor Who and he was actually very good and at times very scary and I think Capaldi may be able to sort of he certainly can do the humour and the kind of the physical presence but he may also bring other tones to it and just be that little bit more scary. The unintended consequence of this is that of course one's children now watch television almost exclusively through a mixture of kind of deciding whether they want to see it on YouTube and then sometimes deigning to actually watch it on a big screen so the unintended consequence of this is for the last week my 12 year old and my 9 year old have done nothing but watch the best of Malcolm Tucker <laughs> which, which is you tricky. know well it's, I've had to kind of you know sort of up my game in terms of explaining an- anatomical possibilities of what you do with an iPod shuffle. And they've become very familiar with a lot of swear words. Exactly that. Very useful in America where they never swear. Well, also the, uh, talking of America, the glitzy launch, uh, Emily, uh, was also a reflection about how important the American audience is now to uh, a BBC One show in terms of Doctor Who. Yeah, kind of like Doctor Who, there are, there are. I mean, I, what do I know? I live in the tiny enclave of New York City where all the hipsters are Whovians. Well, not all of them, but, you know, a substantial amount. You do have to travel to Brooklyn to really see them in full, full effect. So I don't know how it's received in Texas, but it's actually beginning to build a real sort of franchise over there. If the BBC could only sort out the shambles that is... Omnishambles. The omnishambles of BBC America, um, it would be, I'm sure that they could handle those events in a more kind of consistent way because, because there's definitely a market out there. But the show itself was really dreadful. If you, did you watch the show on Sunday night? I caught some of it, yes, with Zoe Ball. It was truly bad. I mean, I, I think also it shows the BBC Television Centre shutting down. They had to sort of stick it out in um, L Street. And 
I really thought it showed a very sort of low level of, of production. Only one old Doctor Who around. I mean, I know that they had to pull the show together very fast, but I, I was so glad. And was Sylvester McCoy not there? <laughs> no. Peter no, Davidson? None of Peter Davidson was there. Oh, but I mean, there. that's partly because he's been cast Opening in, of an envelope. In, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in a BBC <laughs> drama. I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was really poor. So, Emily, what, what, uh, you mentioned BBC America there. What's, what's wrong with it? Oh, it's bloody awful. <laughs> to me... It misses the opportunity to really schedule and show the best of the BBC shows. And when you talk to the BBC about why that is, they come up with some slightly lame answer about having to maximise their investment. So they carry things like Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, which is not even a BBC show. And to me, it's just a massive lost opportunity to turn BBC America into a kind of a much better, horrible phrase, brand ambassador for the BBC as that's, a as that's a post. Exa- that's exactly yeah. my experience. I visit yeah. twice a year. My daughter's living yeah. there. She's longing uh, for a proper BBC in America. It's, it is really pathetic. It's, I don't know it why is they pathetic. mess and, and, around. Uh, it is pathetic and they mess around because they make money out of it or they, or they, they say, well, there's $400 million attached to it. And you think, well... You know, actually, do you know what? You could probably, over the, over the long term, make a great deal more than that if you were just going to sort of handle the programming properly and more consistently with the BBC. And then you find, actually, the BBC World Service on PBS, which is just like a News sort of hour. wonderful, yes. yes, a wonderful gift. Every morning at nine o'clock, not that I'm ever at home that late, I'm nearly always at my desk, um, you can hear a whole hour of uh, the BBC on NPR, and it's what you know New York City listens to. Yes. Next question. Uh, who bought Absolute Radio? Bauer. I knew a radio question. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a sorry tale, hasn't it? The, the history of Absolute Radio the last couple of years since I'm, it was bought I'm by so the Times of India Group. Been, I'm so pleased it's been bought by a committed company which has got resources, has also got radio brands like Kiss. Uh, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's a very, very good, um, deft uh, dovetailing of interests here. And final question, uh, who's going to read the football results on Saturday afternoon on Five Live? Is it a lady? It is a lady. Oh, is Maggie, it can you be Green? any more precise? Charlotte Green, yes. Exactly. Is it Charlotte Green? Charlotte Green, yeah. uh, oh. uh, latterly of Radio 4. That's good news. It could only be better if it was Corey Caulfield, really. But Charlotte Green is very good news. It's Thank one of those you. appointments, Maggie, you sort of look back and think, well, that all, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect, you know. It's, uh, yes, and I mean, I love PRQ the voice. It would almost well. make me listen to Radio 5 Live. Well, the final score this week on the uh, perhaps overextended Media Monkey Quiz is Maggie Brown, three, Emily Bell, three. Well, I think, that, I think that's how it ended up. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it was certainly closer than the ashes. Uh, my thanks to uh, Maggie Brown and to In Person at last on the pod. Hopefully see you again soon. Emily Bell. Thank you. It's time to talk TV now with The Guardian's TV critic, Sam Wollaston. Sam, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Still in the shorts, despite the change of weather? Yeah, mistake, another, another error in judgment again this morning, but I'm still hoping that it's going to carry on a bit. But well, I love your shorts, and the BBC One have got a, uh, the BBC One, um, give it the, the uh, definite article. They've got a quiz show called I Love My Country. I Love My Country, yeah. And I think Which, my link was too tortuous to make any sense, but let's carry on. Yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was hard work. Getting <laughs> it can only get better from now on. <laughs> I love my podcast. I love my podcast. And I love, I love my country. But I realise I'm absolutely wrong about this because I haven't met a single person who agrees. Everybody loathed it. It's, it's generally thought to be possibly the worst television ever. It's a, it's a ridiculous game show in, in which teams of celebrities, sort of celebrities, have to do silly things vaguely connected with Britain, like put a uh, Yorkshire pudding on, on the map where they think Peterborough is, that kind of stuff. Way, guess the weight of the mayor of uh, High Wycombe. And it is very, very silly. Hosted by Gabby Logan. 
who you wouldn't normally think of as a as a Lions Tenement quiz show host. You wouldn't, and I think I saw a sort of lighter side of her than 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 you see in her in her normal presenting. And she danced, and uh, she was roundly uh, slagged off. I saw on various of other reviews and talk boards, etc. And I thought it was really quite nice. And it's 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 unbelievably silly and puerile and. Pinteresque <laughs> contemplation from Mr. Williston. <laughs> I tell you what it is. It's a throwback, isn't it? It's, it feels like an odd concept. It feels like it's kind of hanging onto the coattails of uh, of the Olympics and uh, big kind of chess. Yeah, possibly the timing. I think it possibly it was commissioned just after that, where people thought anything to do with to do with Britain would be kind of you know. Wee. But I think to compare it with that, I mean, people were sort of comparing it with the Olympic opening ceremony, which is ridiculous. I mean, that was a sort of you know a clearly a fantastic thing. This is a very very silly thing. Uh, and I think you can se- celebrate silliness and people making complete hits of themselves as well. I think, and it's it's nice. There is something quite British about people being prepared to go on on TV and can make utter utter tits of themselves, which is what they did. Well, Sam, I got two interesting facts about uh, I love my country. Yeah, um, I love my facts about I love my country. Well, one is that um, it was bought uh, as part of a, a sort of joint deal, I believe, from the uh, Dutch production company responsible for The Voice. So it kind ah, of came as a job lot. A sort of two for one then. Uh, and my second interesting fact, possibly even more interesting, is that the original host was going to be David Williams. Ah. But uh, I think the idea was that there were maybe it was kind of too uh, too many comics spoils the uh, early in- early evening broth. Possibly David Williams would say he did well to stay out of it. But seeing someone like Gabby Logan, who who isn't a comic in that role, is is actually quite uh, refreshing. Well, um, I didn't realise it was a two for one with the voice actually. And you you have to say that you know of those two, the one they're probably. The, the one they they wanted probably was the voice, and they got the other one with it. But I think of the two, I think I probably prefer "I Love My Country." Sam, this is well, I think they call this a, a difficult gear change. Uh, but from "I Love My Country" to Southcliff, Southcliff, the, uh, yeah, which utterly is, harrowing Channel Four drama. Yes, about, uh, a lone gunman goes mad one day and starts shooting people with echoes, obviously, of uh, Cumbria, of Dunblane, of probably most of all Hungerford, because. He lived with his mother as Michael Ryan lived with his mother. Um, he has that same kind of military obsession with guns, etc. It's not uh, easy viewing at all. It's incredibly, it's incredibly powerful. It's, it's bleak, but it's done so beautifully that it's paced so beautifully. It's very slow. It's like a sort of inquest of a crime. It, it, it doesn't excuse what he does, but it sort of tries to understand in in a way by looking back into his past and into the town itself so it's a portrait of a person and of a place as well but then you've got you've got the uh the the story of a journalist going back to cover the story to his own uh, town as well and it's it, it all kind of knits together very well so far and and then sean harris who plays the the killer I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a more convincing portrayal of um, someone who obviously has major health, mental health issues. And how have they sort of trod that line between fears or concerns that it's going to feel exploitative and uh, you know in, in poor taste, given that given that some of those uh, shootings you mentioned uh, happened so recently? Do you think they've do you think they've pulled that off? Uh, I think they have actually. Yeah, I, you you do, it, it it doesn't feel exploitative. It feels more. It's sort of it's more searching than wow. Look at this. This is a bit. It's not kind of pow pow pow. It's it's a, more of an attempt to understand than a 
entertainment on the back of. And uh, well, another drama. I haven't watched Southgate. I tend to, as you mentioned uh, before, I was about to say we came on air, but uh, it's not entirely true. Before we start recording, that I tend to avoid the bleak stuff. Um, but Top of the Lake is fairly bleak, and I'm still I'm still swinging wildly between this is brilliant TV and uh, oh no, I'm going to fall asleep. Again, I think you feel about that location. It's somewhere where you sort of it's it's so incredibly beautiful. You want to go there, and yet you also feel you know what will happen to you if you if you do get there. Will you get rounded up in the woods by some redneck nutters? I think it's again, it's been fantastic. I think I'm not completely uh, convinced by Elizabeth Moss as in in that role. I think so, well, her accent just sounds a, a little bit odd sometimes. I'm not sure if she. It sometimes sounds a bit British. It sometimes sounds a bit American. She's a Kiwi who's been in, in Australia. But, I mean, that's a minor thing. I think it's a good TV show. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's amazing that it sort of succeeds, even, even, though, even though there is kind of there's a hole in the middle of it. I think you're right. She doesn't, is it my fault that I keep thinking of Peggy? Or, you know, so it's all in my... Or, you know, is she just not right for the role? She just doesn't feel substantial enough. No, she doesn't feel substantial enough. And, and whereas Peggy, she's possibly, because she's been Peggy for such a long time, Peggy and Mad Men, um, that we, we sort of know her in that, that we think of her. But she she's more convincing as Peggy than she is as, as a cop. She's not a cop, is she? I mean, she doesn't come across as being a, a, a cop. And she's entirely the wrong century. She should be in the 60s. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it, Sam Wollaston. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests. And I should say, if you missed last week's special, then you can still catch up with it on SoundCloud. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.